Kia ora. I'm really glad you're here with us, listening to this Coalesce Produced podcast, PhD Unpacked. These questions of race are so um, deeply entrenched with national identity and belonging to the country too. So it's not just, um, you know, talking about topics that we don't really talk about. It's about these topics that these topics speak to our understanding of who we are as New Zealanders and how we belong here. A podcast where we unpack a PhD thesis over the course of 30 minutes. My name is Kimberly and I'll be the narrator throughout this series. While James was in the room with the interviewees, I'll be here with you, making sure you don't miss any of the good bits during these conversations about really impactful and powerful research. Whenever you hear the podcast beats, you'll hear me come in and help to unpack a particularly complex idea or clarify something for a bit more understanding. Today, we're joined by Dr. Liana McDonald to discuss her thesis, Silencing and Institutional Racism in Settler Colonial Education. Liana currently works at Victoria University of Wellington, lecturing in the Faculty of Education. Her research focuses mainly on institutional racism in a settler colonial education system. As with everything, the why is central to our understanding. So we begin the corridor with James and Liana talking about why she chose to do this particular PhD. Can you tell us briefly how and why you ended up writing this PhD specifically? Uh, well, this PhD specifically, um, it took a while to get there. I didn't set out to write this one. Um, I kind of set out to write something else, and that stemmed from my experiences as an English teacher in secondary schools. Um, so we, oh, I could begin right back from when I decided to start uh, postgraduate study um, as well because that's part of the journey too. Um, so yeah, I did my BA, um, graduated, went into teachers college and then had all these experiences um, teaching in three schools that drew me back to my childhood and what it was like um, being a student in a school in Marlborough. And I realised that some of the tensions that I experienced as Māori um, in my own education were playing out in front of me as a teacher in schools. Um, and so I was lucky enough to get roped into uh, postgrad study quite early on in my teaching career. And I realised early on that doing postgrad research was a way of exploring, you know, deeply uh, held uh, tensions and questions around my identity as Māori. Um, and so as I progressed through my masters and started my PhD, I initially thought that I wanted to investigate those tensions um, in relation to the English curriculum. Um, but the more I spoke to my participants who themselves were Māori and um, teaching the English curriculum, the more I saw that in order to tell a story of, of Māori uh, tensions and, and difficulties in schools, I needed to broaden my scope to actually include the school system. And so what started as a study of English teaching in the classroom became well, actually what's it like to be Māori um, in schools and indeed, you know, what are schools doing to constrain or um, provide opportunities for being Māori in schools. So that's how I came to the research topic itself, which was about halfway through my data collection phase of my PhD. Um, yeah, and so it became it became more than what I set out to to do, um, and it became much more personal. Um, yeah, and yeah, I'm just so grateful that actually I did the PhD research because 
um, yeah, it became a, a means for me to resolve so many personal tensions that I held within myself. I think it's fascinating that you start started your PhD journey on sort of this one area and then you realise that you're actually, your, your intended focus ends up ends up somewhere else. How long was that process of, of when you first were looking at the English curriculum and then realising that that uh, transition sort of happened? Was that a case of, of months or years? Um, I think it happened over years, yeah, mm. over maybe one or two, um, because it actually involved quite a big mind shift mm. to make that jump from the classroom to sy- systems. Um, because I remember being introduced to literature around race and whiteness, probably well, probably relatively early on in the in the um, PhD by my supervisors. I had great supervisors, um, and I remember thinking when I read this um, article, you know, which talked about whiteness and race. I remember thinking, what, whoa, what, what, what is this? You know, you know, race is like a political system, and racism is still really relevant, and all these sorts of statements. And I just didn't. I think it was right or true, and I couldn't really understand why my supervisors gave it to me. Um, But then the more reading I did, the more um, I came to really connect the theory and the literature to my lived experience. As, like you've said, a teacher, as a young person, a student. Um, Yeah, and, and actually the theory started really speaking to my experiences and speaking to the data, and I think it was about halfway through the first phase of my data collection where I was interviewing, I interviewed about 21 participants in total and about halfway through that process I thought, right, yep, no, this, this is the um, framework that, I need, that I'm going to work with because this speaks to what my participants are telling me. At this point in the interview, James turned the discussion to Liana's research questions and I'll go through those one by one. They are quite jargon heavy since they were written for an academic audience, but that's okay, don't worry. I got you. After I say each question, I'll break it down to simplify it, just so the complex language is a bit more accessible, because that's what we're about here at PhD Unpacked. Liana's first research question was, what do Māori English teachers' responses to New Zealand curriculum requirements for critical approaches to text, identity and biculturalism reveal about the operations of a silencing discourse? Or in slightly simpler terms, In talking to Māori English teachers about these curriculum requirements, what can we learn about silencing and racism in New Zealand education practices? What do their responses tell us about how the silencing discourse works? The initial PhD that I set out to write was really just focused on the English curriculum. Mm -hmm. And so that first question where you spoke about three parts, investigating three parts, um, I think one around identity, one around biculturalism, and one around critic- text. Text, yep. So that was the basis for my research at the beginning. So it was just really, you know, me going in to talk to as many Māori English teachers as I could find to um, ask them questions centred around how they understood that curriculum statement and practice. Um, and then as I was interviewing these teachers and as my thinking around the theoretical framework was starting to shift to become more, you know, focused on the idea of race and how that manages their lives as teachers in the school, Um, then those other questions started forming. When Liana refers to other questions, she's mainly talking about her second and third research questions. 
Like I did with the first one, I'll say each research question and then give a more simplified version after. Her second question was, what is the shape of a hidden curriculum of settler silencing? In other words, what does the hidden curriculum actually look like? How does it manifest in a classroom or in a school? Her third question was, what does the hidden curriculum reveal about the operations of a silencing discourse? To break that down further, what does the hidden curriculum tell us about how the silencing discourse works in education? How does it play out? How does it show up in day-to-day -day teaching and learning? What came out from the interviews based on that curriculum statement was um, a whole lot of ways where teachers were, were showing me that Māori ways of being and doing and knowing were included, but then they were um, rubbing up against these walls where they um, were finding that there were these tensions to do with race that were happening around them. Um, and that wasn't necessarily accommodated for in that policy statement. And so, you know, I was hearing a lot of great stuff about how they were practising teaching in relation to Māori texts and things that they were talking about that included Māori culture. But then um, I was also interested in the tensions that they were experiencing when they came to discuss uh, more taboo subjects, like perhaps bringing up a, a question of racism or or even working with colleagues. I think that was the, the, the site that was the most... Uh, fractious was actually working with colleagues and then finding that the way that they thought about things Māori was completely at odds with their colleagues. And so that sort of stuff is really what started to interest me because that was the stuff that was speaking to, I guess, those tensions that I had experienced um, as, a, as a Māori person, you know, not quite fitting into Māori spaces as they were determined by schools and, and in the way that schools kind of saw what it was meant to be Māori. Um, so yeah, so that's how the literature started speaking to me, was that actually in schools you've got this kind of ethnic and cultural um, construction about what it means to be Māori, but actually there are things about your Māori experience which don't fit into that. And, and actually when you run up against colleagues who are non-Māori telling you that there are these particular ways to be Māori that are actually in conflict with your lived Māori experience, then there's something really wrong with that. I mean, you shouldn't be told, particularly by non-Māori, how to be more Māori or how to think in a way um, that I guess is um, kind of in line with the official curriculum. And this is where um, that dis we start to distinguish between an official curriculum and a hidden curriculum. So whereas um, that, that first question was touching on a, an official curriculum statement that attends to... I guess biculturalism, text and identity, and it has all these kinds of ways of teaching that are associated with that. The um, teachers that I was interviewing were speaking about a hidden curriculum, which involves um, questions about race and ways of being Māori that aren't acknowledged um, by the, the policies that the education system releases. Finally, Liana's last research question was about the hidden curriculum and the settler contract. The question was, how does the hidden curriculum of settler silencing fulfil the aims of the settler contract, and consequently the claim that New Zealand schools are institutionally racist? Now, we'll come back to this idea of the settler contract in a few minutes, but this research question is basically asking how the hidden curriculum works to serve the settler contract and keep it going. What happens in our classrooms to uphold that contract 
and deny the impact and legacy of colonization. So from those in, that interview process where I was like, okay, there's something happening here that's hidden and not um, recognised you know, through official ministry policies, there's this hidden curriculum. I, I, oh, yes, I was able to see that from what the participants were telling me, you know, teaching was very problematic for Māori um, and that it wasn't being this big inclusive um, project that it was claiming to be. Um, but then I found also that teachers, uh, in, in a way, through there being um, ways of being Māori that were included and ways of being Māori that were excluded, as teachers, we all kind of play a part in perpetuating this hidden curriculum because we are kind of immersed, I guess, in the system that um, that we, we do it without conscious thought. So what was great about interviewing Māori English teachers is that they were able to intuitively know that there was something wrong going on and they could sense that there was a hidden curriculum but they couldn't actually put a name to it or, or, or give it a language, I suppose, because it's not something that we talk about in education. We don't talk about race in New Zealand. Um, so, yeah, there was this sort of intuitive thing going on, which then led to the second phase of the research um, project, which was about going into the classrooms of four of those interviewed participants. So four, um, four people volunteered. And then I was able to observe them as they taught, um, I think, three to six lessons with a class around um, a, oh, they, yeah, they taught English um, based on uh, the study of a Māori text. Māori text was kind of loosely, was loosely defined in different ways. But um, though, uh, going into those classes and observing what the teachers were doing um, allowed me to put more of a shape around this hidden curriculum. And I guess I was able to look critically, again, at the way that particular things were included to do with te ao Māori, particular things were excluded. And that allowed me to give a shape to this hidden curriculum um, and the way that uh, teaching... Well, should, I, should I talk about the shape of that hidden curriculum? Please do. <laughs> so um, there were... Yeah, so certain ways that teachers teach when they approach issues of race... Um, are that they soften their language when they um, talk about race-related issues. They might use softer words to describe racism or avoid the word at all. Um, they might um, help make Pākehā students feel OK when it comes to talking about race issues, even when the content isn't OK, um, and even when the perpetrators of colonial violence are, are Pākehā themselves. And so in doing so, by softening that language, um, then they might, that helps to sort of create distance between actually uh, the perpetrators of colonial violence, you know, being related to the students in a way um, many Pākehā students, and not everyone obviously, but many are beneficiaries of what happened in the history. Yes, yeah, so it was a whole lot of softening and kind of tactical manoeuvring around difficult subjects. Um, in terms of curriculum, like I said earlier on, um, there was certain things about um, mātauranga Māori or te ao Māori that teachers felt more comfortable talking about, which is to do with, um, yeah, the nicer aspects of Māori culture, I suppose. And I drew a lot, drew quite heavily on um, Joanna Kidman's work um, in a paper called Pedagogies of Forgetting, where she describes um, the way that we frame our colonial past as... Um, 
privileging lovely knowledge about our past. So she uses that term actually. And I um, took that term and I applied it to what I was seeing in terms of the kind of curriculum content that was being taught around te ao Māori um, in relation to Māori texts. Um, and then the flip side of lovely knowledge is difficult knowledge, um, which didn't seem to feature in the curriculum um, content around Māori texts at all. Um, and then the other part of the hidden curriculum is to do with uh, well, there's, there's a policy aspect as well, so there was a critique of the way that um, education policy sets up the preconditions to make um, lovely knowledge and the softening of um, teaching pedagogies to do with race um, more manageable or actually, yeah, so that becomes a norm, I suppose. I think that, that I, <laughs> the, the idea from Kidman about lovely knowledge, yeah. and there's, uh, I've got a quote here, a desire to create strong, redemptive narratives about harmonious race relations yeah. was a really eye-opening thing to read about uh, in this PhD, that the, the polar opposites of lovely knowledge and difficult knowledge and, and trying, I guess, to, to quantify or, or make tangible how that softening takes place within a classroom context. And it's interesting that you mentioned that in some cases the teachers knew that there was uh, this hidden curriculum but couldn't quite figure out how it actually manifests and that idea of, of lovely knowledge and I guess trying to, to create redemptive narratives about yeah. these harmonious race relations, even if that isn't the case, is a really interesting way to try and explain exactly what is going on in a classroom. Yeah, yeah, there's layers upon layers of complexity there. I mean, one of them is that, you know, teachers, um, you know, tied in with our identity as teachers, uh, uh, you know, attributes or qualities around wanting to help people, you know, wanting students to do their best in school. And so you can see how an avoidance of difficult subjects in the name of ensuring that that student's going to do well academically and achieve well academically, how that can happen. Um, you know, often a lot of choices as teachers are made um, on behalf of what we think students will best engage with. So if we think, oh, well, you know, Pākehā students aren't going to want to necessarily hear about difficulties of colonisation because it might compromise their grades. You know, you can see how that becomes part of the equation. Um, you know, I think as teachers too, we have these identities where we are successful at school, you know, therefore the school system is set up in a way that should encourage success for more, particularly when you're invested in it as a teacher, you know, it's, it's difficult to kind of see the flip side of education failure, I guess, or, or see the things that could be making uh, life harder for, for students. Um, yeah, in terms of redemptive narratives and, and creating this kind of, I guess, imaginary kind of race relations narrative where things are harmonious between Māori and Pākehā now and, and um, you know, dif the difficulties of our difficult histories and colonial pasts have been resolved. I mean, that's... Yeah, that's created, like I said, uh, partly by the way that the Ministry of Education has created these policies that really centre whiteness, um, put, well, puts whiteness at the core of the way all the other operations of schooling play out. And what I mean by that is that it's to, to have policy documents that talk about uh, Māori 
uh, like culturally responsive pedagogy and, you know, in Māori inclusion or Pacifica inclusion. I mean, automatically that's, that language is problematic because we, if Māori and Pacifica were equitably included, we, we wouldn't need mm. something to distinguish them as different. So therefore, oh, so what my study found was that, um, was found, what, what it highlighted, I guess, were some other ways where whiteness was central to other operations in schooling. Um, and I could give an example, if you like, of how that played out. So um, so it was quite interesting comparing the... Um, so I had four teachers who decided to... Um, who let me into their classroom so I could mm. observe. One of those teachers um, taught predominantly Pākehā students, while the other three teachers taught predominantly Māori students. Uh, two of those three teachers who taught Māori students were involved in a really successfully run rumaki um, environment. So it's kind of like it's a... So so they operated within a big mainstream kura, but it was like a, a sort of a Māori immersion type environment. And they did so much to support their students um, to ensure that they had success across the board in terms of all the curriculum areas, but they were struggling in English and maths and science, whereas... So the students weren't quite achieving excellence in those areas, but they were in other areas. And they couldn't figure out why that was. Um, and so what I did is I looked... When I, when I looked at the data and I looked at the way the teacher from that Pākehā classroom was teaching, I found that she could quite easily work through um, an internal English assessment um, quite uh, uh, strategically and quite... Um, just in a very formal kind of yeah, manner, in that she just went from A to B to C to D. Whereas with these um, teachers who were teaching in the Rumaki environment, there was a lot of work um, trying to involve culturally responsive pedagogical practice, as well as doing the work, the academic work of working methodically, that's the word, through um, the, the internal assessment. And so what I found is that, you know, our... Um, the way that we set up our NCA assessments are really racialised because we assume that all students are going to be able to achieve this many credits in this year in, in these certain internal assessments. But, you know, um, you know, in Māori environments where there is so much going on that's both um, historically, um, in, you know, inherited sort of historical traumas, I guess, um, issues that have happened through um, what's happened in the past, you know, coming to bear on the actual teaching project, um, you know, and teachers then enacting cultural, culturally responsive pedagogies to to address all, all of those difficulties from the past and and other social issues that are happening today. You know, they, they those teachers were doing that labour plus doing the academic labour in the same time frames what the other teacher had to do. It showed me how time in our school system is racialised, and so as teachers we often take what we've been given by the ministry and we think it's, you know, best practice. But in fact, if we're not questioning those deeper philosophical assumptions around how we um, position a curriculum and the assessment, you know, um, in relation to timeframes and our assumptions around how students learn and the amount of time that they need to learn, well, then we're setting te certain teachers in certain contexts up for failure through that, through no... Um, 
no harm of their own. You know, they're walking into this system that set up these administrative structures, that set up these um, yeah, ways of, of doing assessment or assumptions around, you know, how long an internal assessment should take. Um, but, yeah, but they're not providing... But that's within a white framework, a, a framework that accommodates a middle-class Pākehā student. Um, you know, and in that way, that's how um, the, the literature of colour blindness then suddenly speaks to this project because colour blindness is about not acknowledging that race does dictate the way that we um, do things in our society. Um, and so you find, you know, that those assessments are set up in a colour blind way because they're not taking, um, um, showing an awareness of the different cultural conditions that Māori need to engage meaningfully in this assessment. Um, the, you know, the length of time that's needed to work through those historical, historical grievances that have come out of col uh, colonisation. Um, you know, and, and social problems, you know, the whole myriad of problems that, you know, different Māori communities face today as a result of what happened in the past. Um, you know, and this is how institutional racism works because it makes all these assumptions around what is considered the norm and it doesn't acknowledge that the norm is actually based on a particular ethnic and cultural standard. If that makes sense. Yeah. It does. Kia ora, Tabby here. One of the producers behind the podcast drop again to let you know that you're missing out on something. You're not reaching your full potential. Why? How could I possibly know that? Because you're not part of the PhD Unpacked Patreon community. See, the episode you're listening to is in the ballpark of 30 to 40 minutes. That's assuming I did my job properly. But the full episodes are actually around an hour and 20 minutes. Now, in making these as accessible as possible, we had to condense the conversation down. But the full version is available to you on Patreon. Now, I could go on and on about the additional benefits, but about two metres to my left, I can see James aggressively tapping on his watch, and to my right, Kimberly's ready to hop into the booth. So, I'll bid you farewell, and I'll see you all at patreon.com slash phdunpacked. That's patreon.com slash phdunpacked. Enjoy the episode, and I'll see you in number two. There's this fan fantastic quote that you, you write about reflecting on your own uh, process of methodology and how it changed in relation to... to your own understanding of the work and it's how my own shifting racial consciousness affected methodological decisions in the shape of the thesis. Mm. One thing we haven't touched on was that within the, the data collection, you did spend some time speaking to the, the student, to students themselves. Yeah. Was that something that you had always intended on doing or did that come later on because you, you after having spoken to teachers and observing the classroom context, realised, well, of course, the students are this, this other, that key aspect. Was that always something you were going to do? Yeah, that was, yeah. Yeah, and but what did it I reveal? Guess, yeah, well, I guess um, because you know I became more race focused, then some of my questions were more directly addressing race, whereas they might may not have if I hadn't gone through that whole shift in understanding myself. Um, but the, I would ask questions around like what what was happening in the classroom in this particular instance. Um, you know what was going on. In fact, yeah, there was one instance when a boy. Um, said to the teacher, oh, it's meant to make us feel white guilt. And um, I don't know if she really picked up on it, but I was quite interested that a student had mentioned it, and so I brought it back into those focus group discussions. And I said, oh, hey, you know, this friend of yours said white guilt. What is white guilt? And it was just really interesting hearing them stumble their way around all the different th ways, things that it could mean. And they thought that it 
white guilt was a term to make them feel bad for things that had happened in the past that they personally weren't implicated in. Um, which is to, you know, a large extent correct because they were not there personally. But if we're looking at that um, teaching opportunity from a race perspective, you know, how might we approach it in a way that actually does show that the past is connected to their lived existence? And I guess as um, teachers, that's something that, well, that's something that teachers would be interested, I think, in in considering, A, that, um, that there is a missed opportunity when these words arise. They do evoke kind of a sense of fear and um, a lot of questions in students around what it means, and B, the process for what they should do next in terms of actually unpacking that, that concept well. Um, yeah, so the students, when they were talking about white guilt, yeah, they, were, they didn't want to use a lot of language, they were fearful of saying the wrong thing, they didn't want to feel like they were personally implicated. Yeah, so it, yeah, so it just sort of I'd ask questions about particular terms, and then I'd ask some questions about more directly about how they feel about saying Maori words, and you know there was all these anxieties that cropped up for them. You know they didn't want to do anything wrong, and so I guess that just showed me that we don't, you know, if for these thing for these topics to be so emotionally loaded, we just don't engage students with them enough, I guess, because they just felt so unsure. Um, but also, as you've pointed out in relation to that quote about lovely knowledge, um, these questions of race are so um, deeply entrenched with national identity and belonging to the country too. So it's not just, um, you know, talking about topics that we don't really talk about. It's about these top it's that these topics speak to our understanding of who we are as New Zealanders and how we belong here. Um, so there are different layers, I guess, um, of understanding around why it's so difficult to talk about race in schools. Um, and that, that's, those sorts of conversations are at an interpersonal level that happen between the students and the teachers and what happens in the classroom. But the stuff that we were talking about um, to do with um, time and the way that assessments are structured and what teachers can realistically get through and the time they have available, that's talking about lovely knowledge at, a, at a, an institutional level. So it's that, yeah, so it's actually that sort of sense of national belonging um, and, and making sure that Pākehā feel like they've come fairly into a country that um, was invaded by settler ancestors, that's actually embedded into the, um, the structures of, of schooling as well as the way we relate to each other interpersonally. One thing that's a kind of a, a key focus we found in your PhD is, is this writing by an author called an academic, Charles Mills, on the racial contract, this epistemology of, of ignorance and how that leads into this idea of a settler contract and socially constructed historical amnesia. I know these are, these are quite high academic jargony concepts, but I, uh, I know, was it recently the 25th anniversary of, of the Charles Mills racial contract? Yes. It's a lot to break down, but if you could give us some understanding of that piece of work and, and what it speaks to about mm. race and ignorance and, and why we find the manifestation of, of racism within an education system, that would be really helpful. Yeah, well, I guess um, in order to set the scene for his work, the very first sentence of the racial contract 
is white supremacy is the unnamed political system that has made the modern world what it is today. And it's a really powerful statement, but what that statement does is it places race at the centre or of, of how we manage our societies and our social relations. And Mil Charles Mills is careful not to say that, that race is the determining structure, like he acknowledges that it intersects with gender and, um, you know, with, with uh, capitalism and other types of structures, but he really looks at society through that race lens. And his um, race, the racial contract falls into sort of that critical race theory paradigm as well, so it's part of that um, sort of sort of field that assumes that that race and racism is normal. It's normal and our societies um, evolve uh, revolve around it. Um, so his racial contract really cleverly um, picks apart a whole lot of kind of assumptions around the rules that govern our society and he starts with social contract theorists like Kant and Rousseau and he sort of looks at the context of the time that they lived in and he said, well, actually, you know, these guys were pretty racist if you looked at their lives and, you know, the way they supported slavery, there's a problem there. Um, and then he moves into, and I'm probably going to be missing heaps of heaps of his writing, but I'm just picking up on main points that I remember. He um, looks at the way that um, countries were colonised, you know, during the 1500s and 1600s, and the reasons that legitimised that col colonial invasion. And it was simply that um, Indigenous people and the people who were first in those societies that Europeans moved into were not thought of as real humans. They were subhumans. Um, they were savages. They were in need of enlightenment. Um, there were all these sort of justifications that were used to take over their, la their lands. And it was all due to Europeans, whites being perceived as um, humans and um, the indigenous peoples as being perceived as subhumans. Um, and then Mills, uh, I'm probably skipping a whole bunch of stuff here, but eventually it transpired that avert racism and all those sort of assumptions around um, pers uh, around. Um, biological inferiority became seen as unpopular, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast. And so um, societies had to construct new ways, new rationales or new logics to sustain that unequal power dynamic but make it seem like racism had disappeared. And this is where we fall into uh, Mill's logic of an epistemology of ignorance. So he says that, you know, these um, new ways of, of governing society that made, um, that disguised, I guess, the initial way that um, people came in and colonised countries had to be overlooked somehow. And so what society, or what New Zealand did, you know, if we're looking at our particular context, what we did is we forgot our history. We forgot the difficult parts of our history. Um, we went into a, a state of historical amnesia, uh, particularly around um, things like the New Zealand wars, and we constructed our environment, and if we look at schooling in particular, in a way where we didn't, where we didn't have to look at those histories, we didn't have to teach our own history. Um, and so, you know, for many years, um, well, until quite recently, in fact, teaching our national history has been an option for history teachers. And, um, you know, I certainly went through the school system not learning, learning very, very little about, um, about how Māori were 
um, taken over um, or Māori communities were pushed off their land. Um, and so, this, you know, this this sort of falls into our own kind of constructed epistemology of ignorance in, in relation to schooling, was actually not teaching history. Um, yeah, so I guess that is, I guess, one of the main ways that that power dynamic between Pākehā and Māori have, has been able to be sustained is through, you know, um, you know, this sort of active fostering of ignorance of the past. Um, because by doing that, um, you know, that whole narrative around New Zealand being a fair and equitable society where everyone, you know, gets a fair go if we work hard enough, that's been able to um, thrive because there's no sort of counter-narrative that says, says, hey, you know, we aren't a meritocratic nation. We're actually steeped in all these injustices that have been done to the original inhabitants. Um, so in the 80s, biculturalism was formally introduced by the government as a policy to look as though it was equitably including Māori. And this was on the back of a whole lot of Māori activism in the 1970s that really brought to the fore, hey, you know, our institutions are meant to be for everyone, not just for, um, for who they were catering for. Um, then. So, yeah, so biculturalism was this formal policy, Māori and Pākehā um, existing in a kind of partnership side by side. Um, I, but I, uh, one of the scholars I draw on in my work, Dominic O'Sullivan, writes a lot about, um, or he did, he wrote a book called Beyond Biculturalism, which really critiqued the nature of this inclusion. And he said that it was quite token and superficial and symbolic. Um, and so, what I talk about in my thesis is how um, biculturalism as this official policy of inclusion supports historical amnesia because it gives the impression that we are equitably including Māori, whereas we are only including certain aspects of what it means to be Māori that aligns with lovely knowledge and um, <clears throat> some of the, yeah, yeah, lovely knowledge. And so in, in the thesis as well, what I do is I kind of extract key points around what biculturalism actually looks like in schools and in the classrooms. Um, I think one of the points I raise about biculturalism is that it's limited inclusion, which we've spoken about. Um, that biculturalism must feel good. So you can see how the certain things I've talked about already speak to that. And the other aspect of biculturalism that feeds into the state narrative of biculturalism, which is equitable inclusion, um, is that it freezes indigenous temporalities um, or persons, I suppose. And by that I mean if, if the norm is whiteness in an education system and then Māori and Pacifica and other ethnic groups are kind of included on the side, then only certain aspects are allowed into that main dominant system. Um, and part of that is actually a particular Māori personhood is understood and taught to, if that makes sense. So Māori, um, although we might share the same ethnic identity, we are culturally diverse, you know, through assimilation, through um, regions, rohe, iwi, you know, have different ways of operating. And I guess a state narrative of biculturalism doesn't acknowledge this sort of diversity within Māori um, society, or it, or it does it in piecemeal ways. But when you've got policies and when you've got sort of standardised ways of operating that come from a centralised government, you know, telling you what to do 
particularly if you're non-Māori, then you're probably just going to to do to do these um, particular um, to, to do. You'll probably end up doing the state narrative of biculturalism unconsciously because you know you're so you've got all these other competing interests and things you have to do as a teacher that the state narrative just rolls out automatically. Um, yeah, and then that upholds historical amnesia. <laughs> Have I addressed that? Yeah, fully? yeah, absolutely. For anyone listening to PhD Unpacked for the first time, what we usually do in these discussions is end on this final question: Where is the hope? So when we think about this research, what can we look forward to or expect in the future? As we unpack these ideas, the data, and the discussion, how can we actually make change? In the case of Liana's research, can the settler contract actually be broken? Can we expose this hidden curriculum in Aotearoa's education system? Yeah, I think, yeah, there were some clear sort of takeaway messages or, you know, directions that I thought I could follow or be part of. And, you know, um, I think at that stage, no, the Aotearoa New Zealand History's curriculum hadn't come out. So, you know, so I knew that learning more about our, our difficult colonial history and providing students with opportunities to do that was one sort of productive pathway. Um, and I think at the end of the thesis, I also talk about um, finding like-minded people and collaborations, you know, with people who are thinking about race in the same way that you are, um, and working together to push back against the system in various ways. Um, and so I kind of created at the end of my thesis this fictional vignette of what could happen if I was to go back to school and be a teacher and how I might sort of combat the silencing discourse or, or actually or not operate in a way that is in line with the silencing discourse. So how I might evoke racial discomfort um, in, in the way that I teach or with my colleagues in ways that are productive. So, I, yeah, I kind of had some ideas about what I thought might be a pathway out of it. But, you know, you're, you're right to, 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 to say, I, you know, that question around the settler contract being resolute, you know, or can it be broken? Can we break free of it? I mean, I really, I really have my doubts with a mainstream sort of state-led centralised education system, whether that's possible, to be honest. And... You know, since the thesis was written, you know, the history's curriculum is now compulsory. So there are, um, will be opportunities for students to learn about their New Zealand history, um, you know, how that will pan out in terms of how teachers do it. You know, it'll be variable like everything in the curriculum. But, um, you know, there are opportunities for that to happen. But there are new challenges that I guess I've, I've noticed sprout up, um, you know, that, you know, just teaching our history isn't is just not... You know, then a lot more needs to happen than just that. Um, and I think that, you know, there's been research that's shown that, you know, you can teach about a historical past episode, but it doesn't mean that students are necessarily going to connect that to the way that contemporary conditions are racialised. And, and certainly, um, you know, I don't know if the Ministry of Education is going to recognise that the structures in which they operate are part of that legacy of um, an epistemology, you know, that they're actually built on an epistemology of ignorance and that those things need to change. What I'm noticing is that there's still this, um, this emphasis on fixing teachers, you know, and, get, and supporting them to overcome their unconscious or implicit bias um, or, you know... Um, 
yeah, or um, teaching teachers how to be more Māori, you know, if they could do more multicultural things, then that's suddenly just going to support Māori students to succeed. Where it's a, it's a myriad of factors that are infecting, you know, Māori students and the disparities between achievement between them and Pākehā. So, yeah, you still see the settler contract, you know, operating, twisting, turning to, to uphold that epistemology of ignorance. There's a lot that needs to happen. And the more I see that, you know, the more I go back to sort of my idealism upon finishing the thesis, and then I can kind of see my idealism and those ideas that I had post-PhD being squashed because I can see, okay, well... You know, if we did this, you know, what I thought would be a good idea, well, you know, it's happening, but oh no, it's being hedged off in a way that's upholding that sort of colour blindness around race. So, um, yeah, the more I sort of see that, the more disheartened I feel about our mainstream system. Um, but in the same token, you see that there are other things happening to try and address racism. Other policies come out by the ministry. Uh, and then there's this new um, NCA refresh that's going to happen next year. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out. But, you know, I see a lot of well-meaning initiatives and policies to address racism and change, but I don't see that that actually um, educators are going deep enough to do the change that's needed. Because it's, yeah, such a big, big kaupapa. And I guess going home and... Um, you know, doing that iwi-led symposium, education symposium, and actually hearing more from my whānau around the things that iwi are doing back home, um, I, yeah, makes me, at this stage, feel more convinced that there needs to be more sort of separate education systems going on than, than the mainstream. Um, yeah, I just don't see that it can keep up with Māori aspirations for education. It's... It's too big and unwieldy and just the whole system needs to change. So I'm also an educator and it can feel very disheartening working in the system, just like Liana says, because there is so much that needs to change. But that reminds me of something Audre Lorde once said. Change did not begin with you and it did not and will not end with you. But what you do with your life is an absolutely vital piece of that chain. I see research like this as being an essential part of creating that change and helping to one day break that settler contract. And that gives me some hope. A big thank you to Liana for coming onto PhD Unpacked and having a chat with us. If you're looking to learn more, you can have a read of Liana's PhD, which can be found in the bio for this episode. On the next episode of PhD Unpacked, we talk to Dr. John Dance about his PhD, narratives of stopping, starting, and using methamphetamine. We might need to think more humanely about how we're responding to drug users and, as I just said, labelling people in relation to other forms of criminality across their life. What might be a more humane way of dealing with things? What might be a way that might assist with these people feeling more socially included for the duration of their life? What might be more useful forms of language to describe what people have experienced rather than using negative you know, fairly typical drug user language that's popular in our lexicon at the moment. To keep up with the various podcasts and projects that Coalesce are producing, head to at CoalesceNZ on Instagram. And for more from us, it's at PhD Unpacked on Instagram. Before I go, big love to Wellington Access Radio for the interview spot. Thank you for listening. Ma tewa.